Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 20th, 2017, and my guest is author, journalist, and commentator Rana Faruhar. She is a columnist at the Financial Times and the author of Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, which is the subject of our conversation today. Rana, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you so much for having me, Russ. So I want to start with the rise of the financial sector, which is one of the themes of your book, and I want to start with a quote. You say, how did finance, a sector that makes up 7% of the economy and creates only 4% of the jobs, of all jobs, come to generate almost a third of all corporate profits in America at the height of the housing boom, up from some 10% of the slice it was taking 25 years ago? So why is this alarming, and, and what does it tell us? Well, you know, I would start by saying the financial sector or financial services, and I stress the word services because that's kind of the key point here. Finance used to be in service to the real economy, in service to business. It used to function basically as an intermediary, um, you know, greasing the wheels of Main Street capitalism. Um, But what I'm arguing in this book is over the last 40 years or so, we've had a fundamental shift Uh, in two ways, in the role of the financial services sector in our economy has now become sort of the tail that wags the dog, which I can explain a little bit more about, but also in terms of size. So those numbers that that you quoted before, 7% of GDP, 4% of jobs, but a quarter of all corporate profits, that is a big, big shift. If you go back to the 1970s, finance was about half the size in terms of uh, U.S. GDP as it is today. It was playing much more of a sort of um, a capital allocation role rather than a trading role. Um, so it was essentially helping do what Adam Smith thought it should do, uh, which is take all of our savings um, – in the form of bank deposits and lend them out to Main Street businesses, to the real economy, um, which would then create growth and jobs. I'm arguing that today the financial services sector, and you know, I have a lot of deep research in the book to back this up, has become the game in and of itself. Um, only about 15% of all the capital coming out of the biggest U.S. financial institutions today goes into business, goes on to Main Street. The rest of it is is basically about the buying and selling of existing assets, which brews bubbles, which creates instability in the system, and also creates a kind of a perverse cycle um, in many ways, in many deep ways, where we are all oriented towards the financial markets, um, you know, via uh, our 401ks, or if you're a CEO um, trying to jack up the share price of a company, it's all about pleasing the markets, it's all about the short term. And I'm arguing that that's had a very deep and degrading effect on the real economy in America. So, only 15% you suggest goes to, quote, real projects or real investment rather than moving yeah. stuff moving stuff around, pieces of paper, speculation, trading, and so on. Of course, it's much bigger than it used to be. So 15% of a much bigger number could still be a good number. The real question that I worry about, and I think you worry about also, is the rest of it. Uh, mm-hmm. What is going on there? And the, the, the industry would defend itself – by saying that they have created all these new instruments, derivatives and other things, 
yes, sometimes blow up, but but are useful in helping people uh, create the portfolio that best matches their risk preferences. Sure. How do you respond? That, that's that's the argument. I'm, you know, they, they've got to tell a story of what, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's we've all got our narrative, right? Right. right. <laughs> so, what's wrong with that narrative? Uh, do you think it's it's there's some truth to it, or do you find it uh, just self serving? Sure. So let me let me take that uh, in pieces. Let me, let me first go to this fifteen percent, which uh, is an important number. This, by the way, is based on. Uh, very deep long-term academic research that was done by Alan Taylor, um, who used to be with Morgan Stanley, um, now at Berkeley, and uh, and Maurice Schulerich, who is a European academic. Um, it was funded by INET, which is the Institute for New Economic Thinking, which is kind of, as you probably know, a liberal um, leaning think tank that's dedicated to kind of getting new economic ideas out there. And basically what they're looking at is the amount of investment that goes into business, you know, into real businesses that create real products. And that's only 15% now. And yes, that's true that it is a much larger number than it was in the seventies. But to your point, what's the rest of it doing? Well, that 85% that's left over is the trading of existing assets, stocks, bonds, and housing. And um, there is a lot of research uh, from big institutions, the BIS, the IMF, the World Bank, any number of academics that show that all of that trading um, has questionable economic value on a kind of a global net basis. Um, It certainly has not generated real economic growth. If you look at the growth of finance, um, you find that it tends to stifle economies when it's even half the size that it is in the U.S. right now. Um, On the other hand, there's also a lot of research to show that excess trading um, creates bubbles, creates market volatility. I mean, you know, (laughs) there's there's plenty of academic research I can cite, but we can also just go back to our own memories of 2008 and we sort of know how this works. But to your point about derivatives and risk allocation, this is a really, really interesting um, question. And in fact, one of my favorite chapters in my book is a chapter that looks at this very question. Um, it's I have a chapter on um, derivatives trading and in particular commodities and derivatives trading. And um, you know I spoke to some great sources on this. Gary Gensler, who used to be head of the CFTC, was a big source on that chapter. And I I looked at the story that I'm sure many listeners will remember uh, from a few years back about the run up in aluminum prices globally. Um, you know there was a wonderful front page story on the New York Times that I think. Uh, really encapsulated it for a lot of people, looking at how Goldman Sachs had become um, a large owner of aluminum and was getting around um, loopholes about the fact that you can't sit on a lot of raw commodities and trade them at the same time. You know, you have to kind of move them out of warehouses. The idea is that this um, prevents banks like Goldman from actually owning and trading and thus, you know, cornering or manipulating the market in certain raw commodities. Well, the bank was getting around this by um, literally kind of forklifting aluminum from one uh, warehouse and moving it, you know, 16 feet to the other one. Um, And it was just a really wonderful visual of how perverted the entire market in this particular area of commodities, derivatives, 
trading and ownership had become. And, you know, there are numbers that show that, yes, of course, derivatives trading is useful for people that own raw commodities, people like farmers, you know, I mean, and, and derivatives have been used since ancient Greek times, you know, the, the idea of an option on an oil, or excuse me, on an olive oil press was, was something that was talked about way back when. That's all well and good. But the problem is that today, the derivatives market itself is um, an exponential factor larger than the value of the underlying commodities that it's supposed to be insuring against. So many people, many academics, which I, you know, I quote um, heavily in this chapter, would say, look, when you've got a market in trading that is, you know, I couldn't say what it is at this very moment, but 25, 30, 50 times the value of the underlying product that is being insured Something's going on that has nothing to do with the real economy, um, you know. And, and there have been uh, any number of traders that I've spoken to that say the same thing. That look, you know, um, uh, hedging is a business. It is no longer uh, necessarily, or or in large part, about actually protecting the value of an underlying commodity. It's about making a profit. And one of the things that is particularly tricky, and I'm getting, I know I'm getting a little into the weeds here, but I think it's useful for people to understand. Um, there used to be legislation um, that protected um, the consumers in the marketplace from market manipulation in a sense that someone who was doing a lot of trading or primarily being a trader and a market maker couldn't actually own a lot of physical commodities. That has now changed. Banks uh, lobbied against that rule many years ago. And so now you have huge institutions that can both own a physical commodity and trade it for profit, which is kind of the essence of market manipulation. And that's why this chapter um, looks at how companies like Coke and Coors and the, you know, the people that actually need aluminum to make their products were complaining that, hey, why is Goldman Sachs uh, you know, manipulating and cornering the market uh, in this product? By the way, I should say that um, this, this whole incident was looked into by regulators and and the bank was um, not found guilty of any of any uh, misdoing. But again, you know, experts would say it's very very difficult to tease out what is about hedging your portfolio for legitimate reasons and what is about speculation and market manipulation. And I think um, anybody who takes a look at this chapter will will be surprised, uh, you know, to to see how close those two things can be. You know, I wasn't I wasn't convinced by it. I thought it was interesting. I hadn't followed the incident. Uh, in the discussion when it happened in real time. Um, and I think, I mean, you raised a lot of points. There was a lot of, of interesting thoughts there. You know, one of them is the size of the derivative market relative to the mm-hmm. underlying product. It sounds bad. It's weird. Uh, yeah. But I think the fundamental issue is, you know, what are the incentives and um, and how competitive are these markets? And, of course, some of them are not so competitive. We're going to come to that later when we talk about uh, regulation and, and the size of the banking, uh, the concentration in the banking sector. I want, to, I want to talk about that later, but, but I think in this particular case, you know, I looked at the data. We'll put up links to that New York Times story and, and some subsequent analyses. It looks to me like aluminum actually fell. The price of aluminum fell during a large part of this claim when when Goldman was manipulating the market. And listeners, the program now. I'm not a big fan of Goldman Sachs, so I'm not. It's not a. Um, for me, I wish I wish it were. It, part of me wishes it were it were otherwise, and, and obviously, reasonable people can disagree on this. But I think the fundamental question is is competitiveness. How many firms can get access to this, and um, the stupidity of making uh, firms move stuff around a forklifts. Uh, that that's. <laughs> We probably agree on that. Uh, well, that's- <laughs> it's interesting. Let, let, let me jump in and say, for starters, 
it's really important on the aluminum question. And I quoted Michael Masters, who himself was a trader, was one of the people that came out and said, hey, th- this is, it's not right what's happening in the derivatives market. And he had Senate testimony that you might want to link to as well, which is fascinating. Sure. Um, but one of the reasons that Goldman and the other banks got out of aluminum is that guess what? It was a good time to get out of aluminum for a couple of reasons. One, the um, hot money that had come into uh, the emerging markets and the commodities markets, which often are a play on the emerging markets. And that had come, by the way, you know, P.S., because of the Fed pumping $4 trillion of money into markets thanks to the financial crisis. We can talk about that and financialization as well. But um, they got out of uh, the aluminum market in part because that um, that bubble was peaking and starting to decline. And the Fed had also announced that it was going to start looking at this rule about whether traders could actually own physical commodities. And so it was a it was a good time to get out. But per your point about regulation, there's still nothing that would prevent um, a bank, a financial entity from getting back into these markets, bidding them up and and doing things that are actually a bigger deal than just making, uh, you know, the, the, the price of a six pack more expensive, doing things like making it hard for people to eat. You know, uh, Josette Sharon, who was the head of the World Food Program um, during the commodities run up that I write about in my book, you know, when it used to go around Davos with a red cup um, that held a day's worth of grain for kids that she was feeding through the World Food Program. And she said, you know, she would pour out half of it and say, that's how much speculators are caught, are literally taking out of the mouths of children. So I got to push back and say, I think that speculation is a huge deal in commodities. And even if we are now not at the top of a cycle, it doesn't mean that we can't be back there again. But um, let's talk about regulation because I think that that's a that's yeah, another interesting I just, topic. I just think um, speculation is the world's a complicated place, and um, the opportunity, as you point out, to hedge against future uncertainty has been um, comforting to a lot of farmers and a lot of folks. The worry they should, they should be allowed to do that, but I think that we need to have a rule come back onto the books that. Uh, institutions that are primarily um, trading should not be owning large amounts of, of um, physical commodities. But anyway, that's, you know, we can yeah, that's okay. um, move on if you'd like. Yeah, no, let's move on. Um, the, the bigger issue, you know, you, you, may, you alluded to the fact that the size of the, that there have been some studies that suggest that the size of the financial sector, um, it's, it's too big in terms of growth, and you talk in your book about how the financial sector reduces growth, the size of it. And I've seen equally um, general studies, and these kind of studies are inevitably uh, – I don't trust any of them, actually. They, they have shown that it, this, you know, the bigger the, the financial sector, the bigger the growth. And these are just – I think this is kind of a, a, a bad exercise. I think, the, I think the question is, what is – what are the incentives that the financial sector faces that are healthy and what are unhealthy? And I think those are the, the, the issues. So let's take one of the ones that comes up in your book, um, the, the seeming um, – the lack of investment that's going on in the American economy yeah. today, the, the, the stockpiling of cash, the use of that cash for stock buybacks. Um, so you're, you're alarmed by that. I am too, but I think for a different reason. So talk about why you're, what's worrisome to you about it. Okay, so this is a really complicated issue. Um, there, there's sort of two things in play. 
there's the size of the financial sector and how it's grown over the last 40 years. And by the way, let me caveat by saying that there have been many periods over several hundred years of the growth and the diminishment of the financial sector. So I, I kind of took the most recent one because it's it's just the easiest window to look at, but this has all happened before. Um, uh, so there's that. And then there's what is the role of the corporation? Is the role of the corporation to simply please the shareholder, you know, the the kind of current debate over shareholder value and whether the stock price of a company is the best indicator of its underlying value? Um, Or is the role of the company something else? Um, Is it to please a larger group of stakeholders, not just shareholders, but uh, workers, um, consumers, the community at large, um, regional economic ecosystems. And I would say that, you know, in the U.S., of course, we have basically shareholder capitalism, which a lot of people, even within the financial sector, are starting to push back about. But in other countries and other regions, they have different forms of capitalism. You know, um, Europeans do it very differently. A lot of Asian state-run economies and emerging market economies do it very differently. So um, this is a very live debate. Now, those two things start to interact and have a big snowball cycle over the last few decades for a couple of reasons. Um, You talked about buybacks, and buybacks have been obviously hugely in the news in the last couple of years, in part because they've reached record levels. Um, but, But how did buybacks even come to be? If you go back to uh, 1982, buybacks were actually illegal. They were considered market manipulation because if you think about what a buyback is, it's you know when a company comes onto the um, market and buys back its own shares, which artificially um, reduces the number of shares and drives up the share price. That was considered market manipulation. But under John Shad, who was the uh, SEC director under Reagan, that was changed. And so companies were now allowed to do that. You start to see immediately at that point in the 80s a big uptick in the number of of buybacks. And you also start to see the money within corporations being um, funneled much more into the financial markets um, via those buybacks. And you start to see the amount of R&D spending as a percentage of revenue, which would be another place that 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 capital could go, start to taper off. Okay, so you come to the 90s then. Um, Clinton is a, Bill Clinton's in office. Um, Bob Rubin is Treasury Secretary. You've got Larry Summers. You've got a bunch of kind of financially friendly folks um, in charge. And there is another debate uh, that starts to happen in the 90s about uh, wealth inequality and the financial markets and and whether or not they're actually helping society um, in a productive way. And there were other folks in the Clinton administration like Joe Stiglitz um, at the time, uh, the progressive, who were arguing, you know, the wealth gap is getting really big here. And, you know, we know financial markets have something to do about that. We see that there's a lot of um, corporate compensation that's being uh, paid out in, in share options. That's an issue. And so Stiglitz and some others argued for a cap on corporate pay. Um, but certain other uh, factions in the administration, the kind of Rubin camp, argued, no, we should we, we should have a cap on corporate pay, but you should be able to have performance-based pay for top performers that would be paid out in share options. And so that was allowed above a million dollars. And by the way, some of the folks, this is this was a very bipartisan issue because, you know, not only were certain Democrats in favor of this, but a lot of Silicon Valley tech money, you know, CEOs was were lobbying for this because obviously a lot of their compensation was tied to um, to share options. So that was passed and you could now have this. Which um, seems perf- like a good idea, right? To which align se- which the- seems like, yeah, yeah, no, none of this is like, you know, nobody's being venal here. This is about 
trying out different things and seeing what they work but and seeing if they work and you know you can see the argument for for paying someone in share options absolutely but what happens then and if you look at the data in the book you then get a huge uptick in the amount of share buybacks that are being done you start to see huge amounts of options pay coming onto balance sheets, um, much of it, um, you know, uh, in tax favorable ways, which is a whole nother thing that we may want to talk about the tax code and, and how that plays into things. Um, but you really start to see, um, uh, that performance-based pay taking off. Um, you see wealth inequality starting to grow dramatically. And, you know, Thomas Piketty gets into some of, um, some of this in his book, Capital in the 21st Century, and how stock options and performance pay figured into wealth inequality. That, of course, has, a, I believe, a dampening effect on the overall economy because there's only so many cars and houses and pairs of jeans that, you know, rich people can buy. We can, again, talk about that. But what you really start to see then is that that share options number goes way up and uh, investment into R&D as a percentage of revenue starts to go down. Now, I will say that um, actual causal links are very, very difficult to make in in this equation, right? Because there's a lot of things, as, as you mentioned, the financial markets are a complicated place. There's a lot of things happening. But there are plenty of people and you know, academics, but also CEOs, uh, folks in finance themselves that would say, yeah, you know, a lot of the buyback money that's in the markets right now is going there because executives make these decisions. They get, you know, 80% of their pay in share options. They have every reason to jack up the share price quarter on quarter. The street demands that they do that or they're out. You know, the average tenure of a CEO is three years and you have to be um, a founder, owner, an entrepreneur, somebody with a big personality to really fight against that pressure. And so you get this snowball cycle where I would argue that the markets are no longer effectively funneling capital to places where it is necessarily the most productive. They're funneling it to a place where it enriches this sort of closed loop of the financial markets itself. Well, I, I, don't, th- I don't think there's anything sinister so I don't see it as, as particularly sinister. Not sinister, it's incentives. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how important the incentives are, but they're they're relevant, and it's certainly true that uh, CEOs have an incentive to buy back stock rather than to give a dividend. But both of them are ways to return money oh, to shareholders sure. who choose. In the case of a dividend, everybody gets the money. Every shareholder gets the money. In case of a stock buyback, if you want to take the cash, you can then sell some of your shares and cash out and, and take a capital gain, which if it's a long-term gain, is going to be the same tax consequences as the dividend. But to me, the bigger issue is why aren't they investing more? And, and that's that fundamental question is, uh, of course, complicated. It depends well, on- not not so complicated. I mean, you know, one of the things I look at in my book, I, I have a lot on Apple because Apple is such a great mirror into this whole thing. Every time over the, I mean, first of all, Apple hasn't needed to raise money for operating Correct. expenses since the 1990s. But every time, in cash, sorry, yeah. Um, every time that company, or frankly, any company says, you know what, we're going to make a big long-term R&D investment, the share price goes down. When they say, hey, we're going to do buybacks and dividend payments to, you know, bolster the quarter, the share price goes up. It's really not that complicated. Short-termism rules. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, The reason I say that is that Apple— it is true. No, it is. I mean, I, you know, I actually documented in the book. It's well footnoted. That's not necessarily the same as undeniably true. I think the question for Apple is, Apple made a lot of investments, a huge amount of of R&D investment over the last 
25 years. Some of those were incredible. Lately, they haven't been doing so well. So their hit rate, their success rate is down. They seem to have lost some of their innovative mojo. So I'm not surprised that the market is not as enthusiastic about them as they once were. Well, but that kind of proves my point. I mean, the whole first chapter of my book is about how different the management of Apple was under Steve Jobs versus Tim Cook. You know, if you you're absolutely right. I mean, this used to be a company that poured a tremendous amount of money into R and D. And you know, one of the reasons that they were able to do things like open Apple stuff, you know, open a giant glass box with three products in it. This yeah. is what Apple stores were when they first opened, right? You know, the if you if you if you'd been an average CEO you know, going out to the markets to say, hey, we're going to open a bunch of stores that, you know, have are incredibly expensive. We're going to put three products in them. You know, all these things that Steve Jobs did. And the markets were killing. Uh, but but he was somebody that had the sort of first force of personality to push those ideas through. Um, Tim Cook is very much, I think, a steward of a more developed uh you know, older company, and he works in a much more financialized way, and and this is a big this is a big issue and problem. I mean, if you look, there's been some Stanford research that's been done on um, on tech companies IPOing recently in the last twelve years or so, and you look at how their innovation starts to tail off after they go to the public markets. It's just really, really hard once you have that pressure of the public markets to jack up share price to say. We're going to do these five, seven, ten-year um, investments in new technologies and sort of blue sky things that may not pay off, and they're going to be really risky, um, and we may even, you know, lose market share or, or take a hit in the short term. But we think it's going to pay off longer term. I think it's really, really hard for companies to make those investments, and I think any CEO you talk to will say that that's true. And some of them want to, and some of them don't. Well, they make so those. It, they make you know, those investments. Depends. They make those investments now in the early days of their company, spending their own money and the money of their venture capital investors who have a portfolio of 10, 20, 30 companies of which they hope a few will become unicorns worth a billion market cap or more. And they realize that most of them won't. They can't tell which ones they are in advance. And that's what that market does really well. And the stock market, the public company market does something different. Um, I don't, it's not surprising that it's hard to sustain brilliant innovation through the life cycle of a company. Apple's really an extraordinary story in that Steve Jobs was able to innovate more than once. <laughs> once is a huge number, but he was able to transform a number of industries through visionary investing. It's not in R&D. It's not surprising that Tim Cook can't do it. I don't think it's because Tim Cook isn't has a different philosophy. I think Tim Cook's not as talented. And I that's I say well, that with, with total respect <laughs> for him. It's a tough standard well, to say you're not as talented yeah. as Steve Jobs. Yeah, well he has his strengths. But you know, I, I would say that one of the things that's concerning to me is that when you look at how uh, who the new challenges are uh, globally for big American companies they tend to be um, emerging market giants or um, international competitors that don't have that same short-term market pressure. And I do think that makes a difference. I think that um, you know, family-run emerging market companies that can look out over 20, 30, 50-year horizons rather than two-quarter horizons uh, are able to do things that big American multinationals aren't. And given that those companies are still the largest employers in the U.S., um, I think that 
their operating environment is is really important for all of us to understand. Yeah, I I agree with that. I think the real the deeper question, and I don't deny that there's some short termism in in um, in U.S. companies. Part of it is the result of that that short term. <laughs> what? Some. I mean, I would say that that's the fundamental driver. Well, would you say that's the driver in the political market as well? That oh, politicians only sure, care about two years, and because they most representatives well, yeah. at most or yeah, two. I think I think I risk would of being yeah. thrown out. So that's part of it. I mean, I you know I have a whole chapter on the interaction between Wall Street and Washington. You might want to. We can get to that. We'll get to that. Now, that's that's the one we agree on totally. So we're gonna we're gonna have fun with that one. Um, I just I'm not. What's interesting, I think, for me as a reader of your book is that I agree with about half of it uh, vehemently. With, with great, right? Well, that's unusual. I'm, Ron, I'm a Chicago School economist, right? So I'm I should I could disagree with all of it, but I don't. I agree with a lot of it, and and I think it's a fascinating time in American public policy the last five years or so and going forward where people like you and me who look at the world very differently agree very much on this one issue, which is that Wall Street has too much power and Wall Street has too much influence and Wall Street can wreak a lot of destruction outside of its boundaries. And we agree on that. And yet we disagree on sometimes what the other stuff is like we're doing now about how the rest of the economy works, and we might disagree about how to make that better. And I, I we'll, we'll get to uh, the how to make it better part because I think, um, I think fundamentally there's a difference in our diagnosis of the problem. I suspect as to why, even though we agree on that the symptoms are bad, we might disagree on the underlying disease. Um, so let's turn to that. So one of the points you make in the book is how much uh, credit has expanded in the United States to consumers. And that this has led to uh, a lot of more profit for the financial sector. And you'd think it would go the other way. You'd think they would have to be competing to give consumers better deals. Talk about that and what's alarming about that and what uh, what do you think is, is going on there? Well, so um, this issue of debt is really important. And I look at it mainly in the, the, the tax chapter because one of the things that I think we should be looking at – you know, in Washington is the way in which the tax code subsidizes debt. And this is it's actually an interesting question politically, because I, you know, I know some conservatives who disagree with my analysis, but I know plenty of kind of Midwestern Rust Belt conservatives who actually do agree with the analysis and think that debt is a big problem. And one of the things that's fascinating to me politically is we talk a lot about national debt, but we don't talk so much about consumer and corporate debt, which, you know, can wreck a lot of havoc. So a lot of um, uh, the figures that I quote in this part of my book come from Sufi and Mian, who wrote House of Debt, which, you know, you may have read, uh, looking at how Quick run-ups in debt of all kinds um, tend to be tends to be the biggest predictor of financial crises, right? And um, and so I always like to just as a financial journalist and somebody that covers uh, business and economics, I like to look at where debt bubbles are brewing to look for where trouble may potentially occur. And sometimes it's difficult to see how the dominoes will fall, but you could certainly in the run-up to two thousand and eight look at the um, you know the housing markets. Um, uh, and and see debt run-ups there. I would argue that today you can look at the corporate debt markets and say that, okay, even though companies have a lot of uh, cash on the balance sheets, 
some of it stored in overseas bank accounts. Um, you know, there's been a huge corporate debt bubble that's brewing. You've already started to see some correction of that in junk bonds, um, particularly in commodities markets. Um, and what's interesting is a lot of those corrections that you've seen in the last two or three years um, have come when the Fed has indicated that, for example, it's going to pull back on quantitative easing or that we're going to start moving into um, a different interest rate environment. Um, that's when you start started to see a correction in some emerging markets, in some commodities markets, and also the popping of certain um, junk bonds, particularly in minerals and manufacturing and things like that in the U.S., where you had seen a lot of run-up in debt. So, Debt has this perverse effect. Um, just as a little interesting side note, I'm thinking and looking a lot at debt in China right now because, and I, I mentioned that a little bit in my book. I didn't get too much into it, but if you look at where there's been a huge run up in debt um, in the last few years, it's been in China in a way that really makes the Arizona or Florida, you know, housing markets seem kind of minor by comparison. So yeah, they got some issues um, coming. They got some issues. Yeah, now, now how they handle it and what, you know, what a financial crisis in a state-run closed economy looks like is kind of another question. But so debt as a predictor of financial crises is important. And then the thing that I find um, concerning and something that I wish policymakers would look more closely at is how the U.S. tax code subsidizes that debt. So I'll just give a personal example. I mean, you know, I live in a brownstone in uh, Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is a very hot housing market. Um, you know, I, like every other person in the country, enjoy a sizable tax benefits from the mortgage interest deduction. Um, that's a deduction that benefits mainly middle and upper class people. Yep. Um, that uh, That is something, of course, that's a total political hot potato, but this is exactly the kind of um, deduction that I think we probably shouldn't be giving. You know, I think that the housing market in, in my neighborhood and many others would look very different if we weren't getting that. Totally same agree. thing goes, <laughs> same thing in commercial real estate, right? I mean, you know, you can, you can, you can spread that out. There's also any numbers of way in, uh, ways in which we subsidize unproductive corporate debt. And, um, you know, the economist you may have read, they did a really deep dive, I don't know, maybe a year ago into this issue of tax code subsidizing debt versus equity. And what would it be like if that changed? And I'm not saying I, for a minute that that's not a complicated shift to make or that that wouldn't come with its own set of consequences that could have you know, unintended um, uh, implications. But it's an interesting question. Why are we subsidizing all this debt? Um, who is it benefiting? And, you know, one party that it benefits a lot is the financial markets because financial markets are the in intermediaries issuing the debt, making money from these transactions and so on and so forth. Yeah, I like to say that uh, Republicans and Democrats are very similar. They both like to give money to their friends. They just have different <laughs> friends. Right, but they right, have right. one friend in common, which is the financial sector. So that's, I think, the most dangerous piece of our political economy and, and public yeah. policy uh, incentives that we face today. But you raised the, the point about debt versus equity, I think, is a central question. And you talk about it in the book um, and focus on it correctly, that it, that the the rise in debt finance and the increase in leverage in, in Wall Street is just extraordinary. And and I think you correctly identify one of the causes of it, which is an important cause, which is the end of the partnership model, which mm -hmm. was the Wall Street model until really almost the late 90s, mid-90s. Uh, until then, 
banks spent their own money. They yeah. they were partnerships. You brought in your you brought in uh, your own money was at risk as as a bank as a yeah. excuse me as an investment bank. I want to make it clear. I'm not talking about Main Street banks. Yeah, yeah. Talking about Wall Street banks. The, the investment banking business was very much uh, uh, a partnership model that changed, and that to me is the really the when we unleash the most dangerous um, potential for for disaster, which has culminated in the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's because they weren't spending their own money. Their ability to borrow money got uh, got incre- incredibly dangerous, which made them very prone to small uh, changes in asset prices, making them insolvent, which is what happened. So for me, and I want to give you my explanation, you can react mm-hmm. to it because you don't talk about it in the book. I mean, and I don't see a lot of people doing work on this, which is sad, which is why did this change? Why did banks uh, become uh, publicly traded? Why did investment banks become publicly traded? My argument is is that once it became clear that uh, debt holders would be protected in bailouts, which started yeah. in 1984 with Continental Illinois uh, and then proceeded regularly through the Mexican crisis and elsewhere that the people who lent money would be able to get almost 100 100 cents back on the dollar almost every time, that that made it incredibly costly to be a partnership. Because what you should be Mm -hmm. doing is is being highly leveraged, borrowing a lot of money, going into, into the into the financial market through a publicly traded company and having a lot more assets to, of other people to spend. So that's what, to me, is, the, is that big change. And so for me, and this is naive, but my goal is to reduce the uh, applauding of bailouts. To me, bailouts are the source totally of our agree. biggest problem. Totally agree. No, I, I mean, I love this point, actually. And it, it's one of those really interesting points that I... You know, I'm I'm a liberal, but they're I'm a I'm a Midwestern liberal. <laughs> My dad ran, ran a manufacturing company. I kind of grew up with a somewhat different idea about debt and bailouts. I think than than many liberals have, and I agree with this point. I, you know, I, I think that there is a tremendous amount of moral hazard at play here, and I in my own research didn't go so deep as you've just done to isolate particular cases and and you know the legislation that uh, led to all these changes. But I love this point. And what I did think a lot about is the way in which um, the political economy and Wall Street interact. You know, And at the end of the day, um, it benefits a lot of people in Washington to have large financial institutions doing their bidding. Um, and part of, and this is something that um, Calamaris and uh, I forget the other academics that Haber. wrote Fragile by, yeah, Fragile by Design, um, got into this idea that, you know, governments from the dawn of time want financial markets to be big and rich so that they can do things like wage wars and build railroads and, you know, whatever and donate, it is. And donate money to donate political money, candidates. You know, right. <laughs> donate, you know, and at the, but that comes with all kinds of hazards. And then they have to end up bailing out these institutions that they have supported and kind of gotten into bed with. And, and it is a really, really perverse cycle. That said, I mean, and I'm curious what you would say to this, actually. I don't know what your position on the on the bailouts was. I think it was it was tough to take a completely Malthusian, you know, argument or Hayekian argument, however you want to, you know, put it, that 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 you should have just, you know, let the financial markets completely collapse in two thousand and eight. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, the problem is is that once you head down that road, uh, it's kind of like um, to me. It's like saying to your kid, uh, you know, <laughs> if you drink and drive, I'm gonna I'm gonna punish you. 
And so <laughs> the first time they do it, you say, well, you know, you really weren't that drunk. And I'm, so I'm, I'm not going to not going to punish you. And then, you know, the, the 15th time it's kind of too late. Um, yeah. and that yeah. you, no, you get a wreck, you. you get a crash. And, you know, I've used this analogy many times on the program and others have too. It's, uh, I, I, I think I invented it, but I'm not alone, which is the, the forest fire. You, you, if you put out every fire because you're afraid it's going to lead to a forest fire, a bigger fire, eventually <clears throat> you allow the buildup of stuff that creates a fire you can't put out. And so we bailed out – a lot of the bailouts were justified going back to 1984. You know, they were justified with, well, this could be a systemic crisis. So we bailed them out. Or uh, you talk about long-term capital management. At least they were bailed out with their own – with yeah, Wall Street yeah. had to use its own money. But they were coerced Absolutely. by, as you point out, by by the Fed uh, to do that. And so each time there was a, what probably would have been a, an unpleasant but not earth-shaking disaster, we made sure that everybody was was given a do-over. And that eventually created the, a disaster that was so large there really would have probably been a horrible – conflagration, a horrible uh, disaster. And so everybody felt pretty good. And in my mm. profession has unanimous, almost unanimously, I'm the exception and a few others, but almost unanimously applauded this, the, the 2008, 2009 uh, bailouts as necessary. And well, they kind of were if, in that they probably would have been a much worse recession, maybe a real depression at that mm. point. But we sowed those seeds so long ago. Yeah. And so yeah. the real challenge now is, well, now what? We, we're, we're, well, we, yeah, we've created, that's as, we've created yeah, a, a concentrated banking system that's prone to a much bigger problem now yeah. and that is going to easily say, oh, you can't let us just die because <laughs> there's going to be horrible consequences. So I just feel like we've put, we boxed ourselves in in a terrible well, way. I, I think that that's a really deep and important point. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking about – all the factors that go into this. I mean, when you think about how uh, officials and regulators react to the markets, I mean, I was thinking about what's the difference between, say, a Bill McDonough, you know, as New York Fed chair versus Bill, uh, sorry, Tim Geithner, you know, I mean, they're <laughs> not much. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, McDonough, I think might have been a little, t- maybe was a little tougher at certain points. I think that there's, there's a way in which, um, Maybe because the rise of finance has now led to such a revolving door between the institutions and Treasury and the Fed that there's a group of people that are, I think, perhaps um, less likely to personally push against the institutions absolutely. at crucial times. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, you get... I mean, at the end of the day, how does this stuff work? You know, a crisis happens, you get everybody in a room and you say, you know what, guys, you're going to put your own capital up. And you can say that in a way that makes them know that there's 10,000 levers you can use to make their lives hell if they don't. Or you can say, or you can blink, you know, and, and why does that happen? But then there's this much, much deeper issue that you're hitting on, which is that, you know, Yes, there are personalities and there are, there are um, the, the particulars of the moment, but we've been brewing this problem for decades. And how do you fix that? And, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my book, I really, really don't like certain aspects of Dodd-Frank as much as I think the financial markets need um, to be properly regulated. I don't like the way in which we're going back and trying to post facto 
um, predict, you know, how to prevent X, Y, and Z type of crises, because as we know, the next one will always be different and it will come from a different place. And that's why I think we need a fundamental rethink of what, what does a healthy financial system look like? You know, we need, and by the way, we need a healthy financial, like the financial markets are so important. I feel like this is part of this debate that doesn't really get spoken about so much. It's all, it's always, and, and this is something I tried not to do in my book and, you know, maybe I failed, but I really didn't want this to be a banker bashing book. I mean, the financial markets are the center of the capitalist system. They've got to be healthy. They've got to work properly. So what do we want them to do? And then how do we incentivize them to do those things rather than post facto trying to prevent every possible bad thing that they've ever done from happening again, which yeah. isn't going to help us with the next crisis. Yeah, and Dodd-Frank, I, I mean, it's, um, I haven't read it. Um, which, <laughs> you haven't read 2,000 well, pages? <laughs> I have read, I've read a lot of pages of a lot of things that I didn't want to read. Uh, so I, 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 I confess this with some um, shame. I, sh- I should have read it, but in a sense, one doesn't have to read it. Here's why. So let me make this claim and let you react to it. Uh, what's clear to me about Dodd-Frank not having read it is it's one extremely complicated. Absolutely. It puts a lot of uh, compliance burden on banks. And the bankers, I don't know many bankers. I know a handful uh, who I interact with very casually in, in social settings now and then. And they, they all tell me that, that, that their world has gotten more onerous. There are more people around keeping an eye on them, which is could be a good thing. I'm not but they're obviously not gonna like that. It's not surprising. Uh mm-hmm. so Dodd Frank raised the regulatory burden on banks. Um everybody who has read it tells me it didn't solve the too big to fail problem. And I know that's true because we had solved too big to fail before and we didn't use those methods when the crisis mm-hmm. came because it was politically mm-hmm. unpalatable to do and that. It so, still is. And it sure. still is. So here's what I see. And, and tell me if you think this is too pessimistic. This is probably, again, where we might agree. Uh, we've, we've made the regulatory framework uh, more Byzantine, more labyrinthine with the result – that only the biggest banks find it easy to comply because they can spread those compliance costs. They give a whole part of their bank devoted to Dodd-Frank. Smaller banks can't do that. So what we've done is we've made the banking industry more concentrated, which means that their claims for their, their, the ease with which they'll demand a bailout goes up because they're more systemically – each one of them is more systemically yeah. important. They're more concentrated, and I just see this as the next – uh, forest fire is going to be even bigger than the, the last one, and the consequences will be worse. And, you know, my goal, which is this is the naive, quixotic part, my goal is to make it politically difficult for politicians to make those kind of bailouts. I want there to be – I want people to see behind what really happened and have mm-hmm. the outrage and make it culturally difficult to, mm-hmm. to, to, to do these things that I think are the part of the problem. I don't know another way. I don't think we're getting there. I don't think we're getting there. I mean, I think that these are great points. And I I would agree with about, well, I'd agree with, you know, largely everything you said. I, I do think the biggest, well, I mean, it's factual that the biggest institutions have gotten bigger, which by proxy, I agree, means that it will be easier for them to demand a bailout if there is a crisis. Um, it will be harder for, or as hard as it was for politicians to stand up to that. There's nothing in the legislation that explicitly prevents bailouts. It comes down to political will. Um, I, I didn't see anything in Dodd-Frank that made me think that 
it was, um, you know, that, that we'd solved the too big to fail problem. Dodd-Frank was incredibly complicated though, right? I mean, it was spliced and diced not only by political factions, but by the bank lobby of itself. Um, yeah, always. And, you know, one of the, you know, the author's note to my book, which I'll just mention, because it was, it was kind of a, you know, the come to Jesus moment when I realized I had to write this book. I was, I was uh, sitting in an off-the-record meeting with a former Obama administration official that was sort of trying to tie a bow around the administration's handling of the financial crisis and kind of be like, okay, we're all done, nothing to see here, move along, folks. And Dodd-Frank at that time, it was 2013, and it was only maybe 50, 60% written. And I was looking into why that was, and I had found some academic shocking. research. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> showing that. shocking. Well, I mean, it also goes to the point of a complexity, like, hello, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'd found some, uh, there, there, there was a academic from University of Michigan doing God's work um, who tallied up all the public consultation meetings that had been taken on the Volcker rule, which was, you know, the rule that was going to separate commercial lending from trading. And it was one of the most contentious parts of the legislation. And they found that 93% of those meetings had been taken with the largest banks, many of them with, you know, just a couple of institutions like JP, some of them with Jamie Dimon himself, you know, I mean, it was just this very, very concentrated group of voices in the room at the time. And this official was arguing that, well, we'd gotten done everything we needed to get done. And, you know, um, lobbying pressure was not a factor here. And I raised my hand and said, well, how can you say that when 93% of the voices in the room were the people that are being regulated? And he looked at me with, true bafflement yeah. and said, um, well, who else should we have been talking to? And that was the moment where I looked around. It was really interesting too. This is an important point. This was a group mainly of financial beat reporters. There was only a couple of generalists like myself there. And I thought, oh my God, everybody's going to be scribbling, right? This is going to be the hot, the hot thing that happened in this interview. Everybody was just kind of going along. Because the well, cognitive even, capture. Yeah, I was going to say, even journalists can have cognitive capture, can oh, be self I mean, from we're it. We're the worst, you know? I mean, you know, <laughs> we can have a whole other podcast on, on what journalism does wrong. But, but uh, I was just like, wow. I'm, you know, I'm not saying when you build a bridge that you don't need a lot of civil engineers around, but you need some people that are going to be on the bridge, too, you know? No, it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible problem, partly because, as you point out, the people inside the bubble have been inside the bubble so long, and more yeah. importantly to me, profit from the internal <laughs> echo chamber that it doesn't even cross their mind. It's it's not like right. again, it's not something sinister. They're not sitting around thinking, "How no, can we?" No. You know, my 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 version of this is is you know Hank Paulson. Uh, I think I'm never I'm not gonna, I'm going to forget these numbers, but Paulson talked to Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs. I, I think 24 times in a in in a two week period in the middle of the crisis, and my joke was, well, they weren't talking about their kids' summer vacations, they were, <laughs> right? And obviously, if if I were the secretary of the treasury, you'd want to talk to somebody at Goldman Sachs about what they thought was going on. They probably do have a lot of inside useful information that's that would one would take into account. And I don't want to minimize the challenge, by the way, of of being in that position. I don't, uh, you know, I'm I'm. Very yeah, aware true. that it's easy that's for true. me to take pot shots at of people course. under tremendous pressure, and uh, couldn't they have done ninety nine cents on the dollar on some of those? So I just, I, <laughs> I, you know, I just the um, the fact that no one took a haircut other than I think uh, one. Um, I want to say is it Washington Mutual? I can't remember. There, everyone else yeah. just got got all their money back, uh, and everybody got to stay in their jobs too. They could have they could have removed people and said, okay. We're going to bail out all your 
your creditors, and they're all going to get 100 cents back on the dollar, but you can't do what you're doing anymore. And I, well, I just want right. to raise this. I just want to raise this because I think it's really important. Uh, you, you, you know, you were very critical of, of Chicago School uh, economics for a couple paragraphs in your book. And where I agree with you on that, and I, I wouldn't say it's literally Chicago School economists, but so-called free market types to say, well, well, that would be wrong to remove people because that's not capitalism. The government shouldn't be able to remove people from their job. And I agree with that. But once you say the government can then force people to be compensated for risks they took and messed up on and get their money back anyway, you're in a different world. Right. You can't. Well, that's the I worst think, of both worlds. This- yeah, no, I think that that's a hugely important point, and it's something that's not well understood is that free markets have to be free markets. But what we have now is not something that Adam Smith would have recognized as a free market. I mean, Adam Smith would say you need three or four things for a market to be well-functioning. You need price transparency. Um, you need um, equal terms for folks on both sides of, of a trade. Um, you know, you, he, would, he would have argued even that you need a kind of a shared moral and societal framework, which is very, very interesting, um, you know, for markets to function properly, because that's not what we have in this country. And I, I think that the point that you mentioned, the sense that the entire public had that, hey, something's rigged here. Well, we wonder why you know, we have the election cycle that we did and, yeah. and we wonder why Donald Trump is president and we wonder why populism is raging in, in any number of countries. And why a seven, this is uh, it, folks. An, an aging socialist almost defeated <laughs> a right. a real socialist, right? Not not just a left of center person, but a socialist almost got the Democratic Party nomination is because people have a sense that something's rotten and they're right. Something is and rotten. They're right. And they're right. That's right. And I think that... Um, it's interesting to me because when I when I look at the 2016 election, I think that that's what people were responding to, and I I worried. I mean, you know, so much about Hillary Clinton's um, campaign because of that. Um, people were responding emotionally; they were not responding to the particulars of any facts. I mean, you know, and just listening to Bernie Sanders talk about the financial markets, I would just be like, oh, roll my eyes. But but he was he and Trump both were capturing this oh, visceral yeah. felt experience that people people out there know. You don't have to know anything about tier one capital to know that something's rotten, as you say. And, and as you point out, uh, the fact that uh, homeowners didn't get a bailout. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not a coincidence. It's not like no one it's not like no one thought of it. They just for a also, whole bunch of reasons, it wasn't politically as attractive as bailing out the funders. I think it's going to be really interesting, just to talk about the current political milieu for a moment, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how all this plays out for the Trump administration. Because, you know, one of the things that happened with Obama, I think, one of the reasons that he hit so much um, that he wanted to do was derailed is because he didn't do the right thing, you know, on the financial crisis at the very beginning. Now, we've talked for an hour about why this is complicated and hard, but the bottom line is the homeowners didn't get a bailout. Wall Street did. People knew something was rotten. And then not only did any kind of coalition on the left break apart, but you sort of lost um, the goodwill of middle America in a lot of ways. Now, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the score with the Trump administration. You know, I mean, it's somewhat different dynamics politically, but you know, is Wall Street going to get a break? Um, are people going to, and you know, we may be coming to another financial crisis or a downturn sooner than we think. I mean, you know, yeah. Trump's definitely unleashing animal spirits in some ways, but he's going to be fighting policy against the Fed 
Um, and there's all kinds of international dynamics that may play into this. We're really at the end of a recovery cycle where, you know, we're eight years now. Um, sorry, you know, almost eight years. Um, and that's when recoveries usually end. So they usually end a lot sooner. It's, this has yeah, been, a, this has been a very unexciting, but long <laughs> recovery I, I, that may, it's, it's, we're in uncharted territory. It, it's, um, you know, my, my view is my listeners want to hear, I think about trade issues at some point, I keep promising and we'll get to it, but uh, Trump (laughs) is another exciting. Well, Trump is, Trump has unleashed some positive animal spirits and some really negative ones for me on trade. Uh, I have no idea where we're going to end up. And um, he's got a lot of, I will see. Um, Let's talk. We've got a few minutes left. Let's, let's talk about um, what you might see. Let's get out of the weeds because Dodd Frank is in, Part of the problem with Dodd Frank for me is is what you pointed out that even in 2013 it was would you say 50 to 60 percent completed yeah. that to me is is death to a democracy to say that we're going to we pass this big law to fix yeah. this big problem but we're not sure it's not we're not sure what's in it we're, we're going to write what's in it as we go forward in ways you'll never notice because you won't be paying attention anymore <laughs> that's to me just not a good thing and that's part of the administrative state that I think is really uh, another part of a uh, of our problem. And I would add, just come back to what we talked about before, for me, a lot of the uncertainty about regulatory uh, detail and, 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 uh, and specifics is part of the reason that investment is in America's in real things is not so healthy. But that's, you know, we could debate that. It's not, a, it's not an open and shut issue, obviously. It's just a, it's a speculation. But, yeah. but stepping back from the details, what, what would you like to see as you know, the short-termism that you decry, like, how do you fix that? I mean, you'd have to understand why it's there. I don't understand why it's there. I, again, I am somewhat skeptical, but, and you think it's obvious, but if you want to change that, if you want to give more of a, are you thinking about cultural change? At one point, you talk about MBA education being part of our problem. It's yeah. yeah. very hard to change. That ain't going to change tomorrow. What, yeah. what do you see as ways to maybe make things a little bit better? Well, so um, sadly, on the, on the, uh, short-termism problem, I don't think that there's one silver bullet. I think that there's a few things. We talked a little bit about buybacks and the legislation around those. I mean, I know liberals and conservatives that would like to see us take a look at that um, 82 and, and 1990s regulation and say, is that serving people? Is that serving the markets? Uh, is that serving the overall American economy to allow the financial markets to operate in this way? So that that would be one thing. Culturally, Definitely business education, I think, has become focused a lot on balance sheet manipulation. And that's something that a lot of CEOs that I talk to have um, have a problem with because it means that they can't find folks that are actually thinking about business um, and growth in a more holistic way. They're, they're tending to come out and just look at P&Ls and um, you know, how do you cut costs? How do you marshal your capital? Well, we're actually living in a world with plenty of capital. I mean, central banks have dumped $30 trillion of money into the markets globally in the last few years. So there's plenty of capital. Uh, talent and workers and consumers, I think, are where the action is. And, and I do feel that, you know, we haven't even talked about technology, but it has a huge intersecting um, uh, effect here. Not only did technology speed up all the processes of financialization that we've been talking about, but um, you know, te- giant tech companies in general are in some ways the new too big to fail systemically important institutions. You know, I mean, they're underwriting bond offerings the way Goldman Sachs would, but guess what? They're not regulated like Goldman Sachs. 
And they're developing all these technologies that are changing the labor markets quickly and in profound ways that may affect um, underlying GDP growth and consumer demand. All this is to say you need business executives that understand all of that and can think holistically rather than just saying cut costs, martial capital. Um, and then there's also this broader question that we touched on about what are the financial markets for? I mean, I would go back to Adam Smith and say the financial markets are there to support the real economy. And how do we simplify regulation? And, you know, I, I, this is total wishful thinking, but hmm. if if the Trump administration and the Republicans do throw out Dodd-Frank, there would be a golden opportunity, and I'm not particularly hopeful because of all the lobbying pressures we spoke about that it would be taken, but there would be a golden opportunity to rethink regulation um, from the ground up and say, what kind of a financial system do we want to have? Let's look at what banks and financial institutions are doing that we know is good for the real economy, and let's incentivize that and really try and flip the paradigm on its head. Um, you know, start with what banks should be doing rather than trying to come up with 2,000 pages of what they shouldn't be and all sorts of loopholes that are going to enrich um, any number of white shoe law firms. Yeah, I mean, I want to see firms take risks and be rewarded when they succeed and punished yes. when they fail. And it seems that part seems kind of simple. I don't know why. Well, I, I guess I do know why that's not enough. But I, when I look at, say, you mentioned Silicon Valley, um, a lot of Silicon Valley companies, which have very high market valuation, may have a bankrupt business model despite their valuation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, Uber is an interesting example. Some people say they're Absolutely. not they're they're really not gonna make it. It's just a pipe dream. They're really betting on the driverless car possibility. That's a very gonna be a very crowded segment. It may not succeed. And let's say they disappear. Oh, that'd be that'd be on good and bad. Good for some people, bad for others. And there'd be some other remaining competitors, maybe. Maybe the whole business model dies out. And that'd be the end of it. It wouldn't destroy the American economy. If, if, the, if the venture capital firms of Silicon Valley, which are very um, special in that they create this, this stew of new opportunity that's very unusual and compared to the rest of the world, if they were to disappear or make a series of really bad investments, one of them, and they went to Washington and said, we did really badly. We want our money back. We'd all say, <laughs> we'd laugh at them. We'd laugh at them. I like and, your baby voice, right? Russ. <laughs> yeah, so that should, be, that should be the mode. And I don't, I don't know why we can't think that Wall Street should be more like venture capital firms. Uh, I want to I uh, uh, let them rise and fall on their own successes and failures and not on mine. <laughs> I want my wallet out of the equation. And, and I just want to add, because they didn't get to – Pile on! I want to pile on. You know, my colleagues in my colleagues in economics, I think, as the too many of them are the handmaidens of Wall Street, or the handmen. I don't know what the right uh, phrase is, but have been the <laughs> facilitators. Not too many. <laughs> we've been the facilitators of of this uh, evil symbiotic uh, relationship between Washington and and the financial sector, and we should be more skeptical about its overall value. And of course, we are, as Luigi Zingales, you mentioned him a few times in your book, we've interviewed him here. Um, it, you know, he points out that we're kind of, we've got, a, got our own special interest. We're compromised as, as objective observers, many of us are. I'm not, fortunately, but uh, many, or unfortunately, right. depending on who you talk to. But I just think we need to uh, be more blunt and try to get out of that cognitive capture 
uh, experience and try to concede the fact that the world is not working the way we sometimes uh, claim it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, skepticism about the models is always a healthy thing, I think. My guest today has been Rana Faruhar. Her book is Makers and Takers. Rana, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.